As you approach this from the middle of the organization, you know that change is going to be inevitable, right? And just just accept it, right? Put it on the calendar. Change is going to happen. Plan for it. Um, and know that, you know, with Mark Woodbury coming into Universal or uh, Salim coming into Six Flags, there's going to be things that change. And the more resistant you are to that change, the harder it's going to be for you and other people. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm awesome. How are you? I am fantastic. So right. good to be here. Hey, Woo! good to see a, a cool new background for you. Thank you. It's actually the same background <laughs> you've seen for the last several months. I just reorganized my home office slash guest room slash podcast studio slash baby's playroom to <laughs> open up some space, make it a little bit more childproof, and also is better for lighting too, if you can tell. You, you look fabulous. You look thank just you. great. You look just great. And, and you look great as always. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I have a question for you. Okay. Um, <laughs> And I know you're gonna you're you're gonna have a, a good uh, response to this, but um, do you know what crowdsourcing is? I do, but I want to hear your definition. <laughs> do you know what crowdsourcing is? I was kind of hoping you'd know, um, but basically, you know, you source the crowd, right? You get stuff from the crowd, um, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because this is a crowdsourced episode of the Attraction Pros podcast. In fact, we've done different versions of this um, over the years, whether it was Attraction Pros Live or bringing people into the call, um, allowing other people to, to share and ask questions. Um, um, but we decided, hey, let's let's put the question out there. What do you wanna hear Attraction Pros talk about and, and cover on this this uh, uh, this episode? And we got a couple of, of, uh, of good responses. I think that this is just a huge testament to your Facebook group, <laughs> All Clear, private learning community for attractions leaders. Is that the, that's the full name of it, right? Sure. There? Yeah. If you're not in this group already, get on Facebook, type in All Clear, private learning community for attractions leaders and request an invite or request entry. <laughs> yeah. And Matt, you might not accept you. I, I will. For the most part, yeah. Unless you're trying to sell us something like widgets or something, then then you, you can't come in. But uh, anybody else is, of course, uh, welcome. But uh, so, yes, we put this question out there in a couple of different channels. We got some folks that responded through the All Clear group. And, um, hey, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what they, what they want us to talk about. I love a good crowdsourced episode. It's been a little while since we've done one. We did, we did Attraction Pros Live on Zoom at the beginning of the pandemic and then maybe the 
150th was also a little bit crowdsourced as yep. well, but yep. that was now 73 episodes ago. So it's, uh, I, I think we're overdue for another crowdsourced, uh, another crowdsourced episode. So we put it out on social media. You posted it in your Facebook group and we got a few really solid replies that were able to actually kind of blend together just a little bit uh, in what we hope will be this nice cohesive conversation that we're <laughs> going to have. But I think the the biggest anchor of it really was, and, and we don't normally talk about industry news on the podcast, but there's just been a lot related to uh, shakeups, I would say, or new people in executive leadership within some of the major theme park chains, companies. Uh, so specifically Disney, Universal, and Six Flags. So I think we can kind of use that as maybe the core topic of conversation and then branch out from there in terms of how we can discuss that in a way that uh, as an industry, we can, um, I don't know, continue to grow and thrive into this next generation of amazing people leading the, leading the industry. Absolutely. Well, and I think what's interesting is that when this was posed, and it was posed by um, the, the original question was Max Glorit. I think I say, I'm saying his name right. He was an ambassador at IAPA this past year, uh, did, a, did a great presidential um, impersonation. But anyway, so um, just kind of a general presidential oh. <laughs> um, impersonation. Um, but anyway, so, you know, talking about the different changes that are happening in, in leadership and specifically executive leadership, you know, a big part of the question was around how do we, how do we navigate that change and how do, you know, what are some things that, that kind of middle managers can do knowing that, Hey, there's going to be these executive changes at the top, whether it's because of retirement or the organization wants to go in a different direction. And what does that really mean for the people that are kind of in the trenches and, you know, I've been through, through some of those situations. I'm sure you have as well, Josh. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot there to sort of unpack and a lot, of, a lot of things to kind of peel back the onion a little bit, if you will. Uh, there's been a lot of articles that are written about it. And so um, we thought that was kind of a great springboard to kind of focus on uh, this particular episode. Yeah, absolutely. So as we get into it, should we give just a, a quick overview of the changes happening within these three major companies? Absolutely. Let's go for it. All right. Uh, so first, I'm going to reference In Park Magazine. So uh, huge thanks to Joe Kleinman, Kleinman, excuse me, for putting together this article. Extremely thorough, great, uh, great resource for us to use, as well as there are a number of other of articles posted as well. Uh, so looking at, let's see, at uh, at Imagineering is now overseen by Barbara, I hope, her, I, hope her, I hope I pronounce her name correctly, uh, either Booza, Bowza. She was named president Walt Disney Imagineering in November of 2021. Uh, she is the first woman and African-American to head Imagineering in the organization's 68-year history. Uh, and then Bob Weiss, who was previously the role of Imagineering, is taking on a new role takes on transitioning from president of Walt Disney Imagineering um, do, 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 before becoming, I'm not going to just obviously read the entire <laughs> article, just kind of skimming it through here. And then a new chair for the Disney company. So Bob Iger is scheduled to step down at the end of 2021 and being 
replaced by Susan Arnold, who is a longtime board member, 14 years of service on the board, uh, previously an operating executive of the equity investment firm, the Carlyle Group, Carlyle Group, where she served from 2013 to 2021. Previously, she was president of global business units of Procter & Gamble. She was vice chair of beauty and health, uh, also for P&G. Uh, President of Global Personal Beauty Care and Global Feminine Care from 2002, Director of McDonald's Corporation, huge history here, this is phenomenal, Director of NBTY Inc. from 2013 to 2017, so a lot of experience in retail sales coming into this position, uh, which is interesting, the article also mentioned that the company merged its consumer goods and theme park division in 2018, and that has now kind of shown the benefits, uh, particularly Joe mentions in the article, uh, the retail and dining options at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge that are exemplary of that approach. Uh, so Mark Woodbury over at Universal was promoted from president of Universal Creative to chair and CEO of Universal Parks and Resorts. So he is taking over from Tom Williams' position. Michael Hightower is now head of Universal Creative. Um, do, 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 do. And then Bill Davis is going to be retiring. Bill Davis and Tom Williams are both retiring. So Bill Davis, who has been uh, president and COO at Universal Orlando for the last 15 years, is being replaced by Karen Irwin, who's coming over from Hollywood, previously uh, president and COO at Universal Hollywood. Uh, so these are some really big ones here. Also some changes happening in Universal's Pacific Rim, which I think is uh, a cool new role being created, or I think at least the, the name of it, I think is really cool. So Tom Merman, who opened Universal Beijing, uh, is taking on the newly creative role of President Pacific Rim for Universal Parks and Resorts, which oversees China, Japan, and California, not Singapore, because that's owned and operated by Genting. Is it Genting or Genting? You did some work a couple of years ago with them, didn't you? I've always heard it pronounced Genting. Okay, got it. Uh, so Genting in Singapore, which is owned and operated, or which owns and operates Universal Studios there. Uh, and then, let's see, scrolling down here, uh, Paige Thompson, who was president and COO, um, or another unit is also being established at Universal, oh, reporting directly to Woodbury, Paige Thompson is becoming president and COO of Universal Parks and Resorts international. Um, and then over at Six Flags, new CEO, that is Salim Basul. Again, I hope I am pronouncing uh, his name correctly. And he is becoming the chain's newest CEO. This, I believe, was announced uh, during IAPA week. So we were able to kind of talk about that buzz a little in person. And then Ben Baldanza took over the non-executive chair position. So these are some of the, the biggest changes that are happening within the industry. There are several others as well. Of course, we could go through the list and list everyone. But first of all, congratulations to, to all of you who are taking on these new roles. Uh, and also consider this a formal invitation to come on the podcast as well. We'd love to have any and all of you to be able to talk about your career background and getting to where you are today. But with that, with these changes, we can talk a little bit about what we can expect to see or what we perhaps can anticipate from these three organizations. And then Matt, like you said, how management and leadership within these organizations are able to navigate these changes as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you want to start with kind of the big picture? What do we see from those, those chains and those, and the, and the changes we might see? Sure. Absolutely. Where do you want to start? Okay. Well, 
neither one of us have a crystal ball, right? Um, but I think what we can we can sort of assess from some of the people that are moving into these positions, um, some are moving around, some are moving up, some are moving into new positions. Um, but I think you're going to see a continued focus on, because you mentioned um, uh, retail, right? You're going to see a continued focus on retail, on food, on expanding the guest experience from attractions, so to speak, and, and air quotes, to more of an experience all around. And, you know, you're definitely seeing that with, with um, Galaxy's Edge and Harry Potter and those type of IPs. But I also think you're going to see that even more like down into the granular, as we like to use that term, um, and, and how we focus on the experience from, you know, the, the entire life cycle of the experience. So some of the things that we, we have kind of adopted because of COVID, you know, it's not the experience of showing up to the park and it hasn't been for a while, right? It's, it starts at home, but how does that experience at home become even more part of the experience for when you get to the park and then even after the visit? So I think for me, some of those, um, uh, some of those, I guess, changes are going to be in the just kind of overall guest experience, um, uh, realm where you're seeing people from different parts of other industries come into our industry to try to kind of beef that up a little bit. Yeah, I, I think the influence coming from outside the industry uh, is really cool to see, especially because there always has kind of been this, maybe this this message within the industry that we sometimes kind of live in an echo chamber and that many people you know, like us, we start in the industry on the front lines, we grow within the industry, and there are so many people that are like that. But being able to see the influence coming from other industries adds a whole new dynamic from it. So we talked about Susan Arnold with, you know, her background with Procter & Gamble. We go over to Six Flags and Selim Basul, his background is in manufacturing. Uh, so his, his company, Middleby, Middle, Middleby, Middleby became the leading global manufacturer of industrial and high-end residential appliances. And then Ben Baldanza, also at Six Flags, was also the president and director of Spirit Airlines. And he currently serves as the director for JetBlue. So looking at airlines, manufacturing of appliances, and then Procter & Gamble, the whole suite of, I don't know, home and beauty products or so. That's probably a very generalized way of categorizing toiletry, soap, all of that. Uh, when we think of these as being very disconnected from the theme park industry and the attractions industry, there are probably so many parallels and so many transferable practices that we'll be able to see infused a little bit more and more into the theme park experience. Well, and one of the things that, as you're talking about that, that I really appreciate about so many of the executives that we've had on the show is their ability to simplify things, right? And so often, you know, we looking up at the C-suite, we think it's very, very complicated. And there are a lot of complex issues, complex decisions to be made. But I think some of the best executives, their, their skill, their superpower is being able to simplify this into, you know, distill it down. Okay, yes, I'm selling a beauty product over here. Over here, I'm selling a, an annual pass or a membership. What are the corollaries? What are the similarities? What emotions am I, you know, triggering in a person when I help them become, you know, better looking or, you know, help them, you know, come to the park more often, right? And the, the really good CEOs, the really good people that are in those executive positions, I think can find those corollaries and, it doesn't necessarily matter that they didn't start as a sweeper and now that they're CEO. I think for a long time, 
we thought that, that is the only career path. I don't think it's a bad career path, but I think what you're also seeing is people that may start may have started off as a sweeper. Maybe they now go to another industry or they go get outside experience and then they come back. I know for a number of uh, family organizations, they require family members as they're coming up th through the ranks. You know, just because you have the same last name as that that's on the park and it's on the check, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to work in this industry. So go out and do something different. Go get an education that is completely outside of the industry. Go find your passion. If you come back and this is your passion, wonderful. If it's not, then you found your passion outside. But I think that just kind of comes full circle when we have people in these executive roles that are coming in that, again, didn't start as a sweeper, didn't start as a ride operator, aren't necessarily, you know, confined to that same echo chamber, that they can really look at things and how we can expand the industry further further than where where even you or I would think because again we started as right operators so we may even have a more limited view well i think that this is also you know a good message for leaders who are in the process of hiring and recruiting and in that same all clear post Cheryl Bindleglass asked about recruiting tips and what comes to mind here is to say when you're looking at someone's resume as far as what their background is to think of something being outside the industry as as a as a plus as a positive and a perhaps a refreshed way of thinking that you'd be able to bring in so maybe it's don't be afraid to look outside the industry for the next wave of talent because look at these amazing executives who have so much experience that is not operating rides or operating games or sweeping midways and you know and, and all of that and balance that perhaps with those who are coming in with experience specifically in the industry. Well, and I think there's a there's a like you said a balance, right? You know, if somebody comes in and they've got they've got ride operator experience from other parks, that's great for getting them up to speed on how to run a ride, but does that have anything to do with your culture? Does that does that have anything to do with their ability to provide an outstanding guest experience? Maybe maybe not. Right. But if you find that diamond in the rough, that they are amazing with guests, they have a wonderful smile. They're just, you know, ready and willing to do just about anything that you ask them to do. And then you teach them how to run a ride or how to run the POS system. You know, that's a much better recruiting approach than saying, oh, we've got to find these people with quote unquote experience, because the experience that you get may not be the experience that you want. And then you've got to reteach them and retrain them into your culture. So you know, hire for the cultural fit. And we've been, you know, banging this drum for many, many years, but hire for the cultural fit and then teach them the skills. Yeah. And that obviously even goes down to the front line as well. I mean, I can tell you that, you know, when I was hiring frontline employees who are ride operators or they're, you know, arcade redemption staff members or, uh, or food and beverage staff members, if someone had McDonald's on their resume, <laughs> That, that's amazing, right? Like, yes, I can, I can teach you how to operate a ride because you've worked for this large company that, you know, that has training program and, you know, is, is a great first step in many people's career. Or if they had Publix on their resume down in Florida, then that was, you know, that was a huge plus. Um, especially if I was, you know, working in a park where there other, there weren't necessarily other attractions within the region that perhaps they didn't have attraction experience. And even if they did, does that mean that they're going to be a cultural fit at this location? So, um, so we just went from the CEO to the frontline employee. <laughs> that was a whirlwind of a yeah. first part of this conversation. Any any other, I guess, thoughts specifically on the on the experience outside the industry part of the conversation? 
Um, only that, again, if you hire someone with the experience from outside the industry, you're going to get a wider perspective, right? You're going to get people that have um, different ideas. And while that's good, I think on one hand, on the other hand, you don't want people that are so stuck in whatever you know way that they did things before that they can't you know, kind of adapt to what you're doing as well. So there's a balance there, right? There's, there's always a balance of, of experience. Um, but I also want to bring this back to that kind of original part of the question as we're talking about, you know, all these executives that are, are changing positions and what that means and how that trickles down through the ranks to other, other leaders within the industry. And a couple of thoughts that were, were kind of going through my mind as I read through Max's um, question were, you know, as, as you approach this from the middle of the organization, you know that change is going to be inevitable, right? And just, just accept it, right? P put it on the calendar. Change is going to happen. Plan for it. Um, and know that, you know, with Mark Woodbury coming into Universal or uh, Salim coming into Six Flags, there's going to be things that change. And the more resistant you are to that change, the harder it's going to be for you and other people. You know, I kind of equate, you know, when, when a new CEO comes in, I kind of equate it, especially at a large company to like turning a ship, right? And maybe, maybe that ship is heading east with the old CEO and the new CEO says, we got to head north, right? Well, first of all, it's going to take a lot of effort and momentum to turn that ship to go north, right? And along that way, you're going to be off course for a little while, right? Things are going to be up in the air. You're not going to know what's going, what's going to be happening. but at some point, you got to have a little faith in the system that you're going to be able to go north at some point. But I also think in order to get there, the people in the middle have to be on board. And there's a lot of things we can talk about in, in order to get them there. But as a leader, I think you can make a choice to be on board or to not be on board with those changes. And, you know, I'm of the, the experience that if you give them some time, if you give them, give them a chance and don't just, um, uh, you know, negate them just out of hand and say, oh, this will never work. If you can at least give them a, a little bit of a chance, then you're much better off being able to explain it to other people. And um, it's, it's going to be a much smoother process. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but you've tried it. Right. And I think that's, that's one of the important points. So I want to shift the perspective here. What advice, and, and they may or may not need it. What advice do you have for these new CEOs for managing potential resistance to change? Absolutely. I think it's about over-communicating, right? And it's not just about communicating your vision and what you're looking for. It's getting the information and feedback back from your teams because they may be scared about things. They may be uncertain of, about certain things. You know, a new CEO comes in and automatically people are going to think, well, they're going to make changes. They're going to lay people off. They're going to, you know, my, my job may be in jeopardy. And so I think communicating what your plan is and, you know, hopefully that jobs aren't in jeopardy, but allow people to share that point of view, right? Allow people to express where they're coming from and then be able to address that. So um, I just, I kind of blanket that with over communicate, but it's not just about sharing your vision and what you're, what you're trying to do, but it's also about listening to what, what people are saying back to you so that you can address it. Yeah. So then flipping it back to those who are in middle management or other senior leadership, if they are resistant to that change, and we, we all might have our, our bona fide reasons for why we might be hesitant to get on board with going north when we've been going 
east. I think that's what you said. No, yeah. <laughs> which direction, whatever it was. Uh, and then we've all got our reasons. We've got our, our history with the company and, you know, years of, of practices that are well established. While yes, some, some of that might be recognizing that, hey, we've been doing this because that's the way it's always been done, but also we've got this track record of proven results and now we want to go in a different direction. What do you say for those who, who yes, they should be getting on board with kind of the, the new leadership at the top, but also are genuinely hesitant? Well, I think it's first of all to look at things logically and not emotionally which is very easy for me to say, standing in my home office, talking to you on Zoom. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you, when you bring the emotions or take the emotions out of it and you look at it very logically, you know, that new CEO is not going to do anything ideally that is going to completely tank the company, right? That's not why they took that position. So again, a little benefit of the doubt can go a long way. But I think it's also when you take the emotion out of it and look at things logically is being able to articulate whatever concerns that you have, right? So middle management, probably many, many layers between yourself and the new CEO. If you can go to your boss and not say, this sucks, they're just going to change everything. And my job, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, it's going to, it's going to be terrible, right? That's not going to get a very good reaction from your boss, right? But if you go and you say, Hey, the new CEO in the town hall said this, how does that affect my department, right? Or here's what I see as a concern for myself and my team. Then you can actually have a conversation, a discussion about it instead of just your emotional blow up, right? Now, you may have that emotional blow up on your own, like back in the back somewhere in your office, but when you go to approach it so that you can have a productive conversation, be a little bit more logical about it and, and, and try to remove some of that emotion from the beginning part of that conversation. That makes sense. Yeah. Because then you, you come across as more, like you said, logical and more level-headed. I hate that. I always do this, but I always tie back to guest experience that when the guest complains about something, those who are saying, Hey, we had this concern with the visit and I want to better understand why this was the case is so much better than you ruined my entire family's vacation and, you know, I, I want a full refund. So uh, yes, coming, coming at any, um, I don't know, questionable or anything that you are resisting or hesitant about in regardless of what capacity it's in coming at it from a logical level-headed approach to say, Hey, I want to discuss this. I want to better understand it uh, shows that you are on board and you are with it, with the changes that are happening. One thing that is interesting too, is that, each of these three companies, Disney, Universal, Six Flags, uh, these are all companies that, for the most part, are, are doing very well, that just got through, hopefully I, I speak about this fully in past tense, but you know some of the worst time in our industry's history, and we're able to see 2021 as being substantially better than 2020, and hopefully, and even better than 2019 in some cases, and hopefully going into 2022 with this I don't know, this continued surge and upward movement and momentum. And there might also kind of be this, this element of saying, well, I don't, I don't necessarily want to rock the boat because we are going in such a good direction, but I actually want to put more fuel on this fire so that we can continue accelerating and continue emerging out of the pandemic and into the future. Uh, what, are, what are your overall thoughts on that, on, on these being 
three companies where neither one of them is a sinking ship by any means, that these are all already moving in the right direction. Well, I think whenever you take over, you know, a new team, a new department, a new organization, um, you have to understand what that organization or that team or that that department has been through, right? And kind of where they are so that you can figure out where to take it. Um, but again, you know, a CEO is not, a new CEO is not put in that place to, to just be the status quo, right? You know, neither Universal, Disney, or, or Six Flags are just going to sit on their laurels and say, oh, we did great in 2021. I guess we'll just do the same thing in 2022, right? Take a victory lap, sit down, put your feet up, listen to some carousel music and eat cotton candy. That's not what they're doing. So their role is to, I think, you know, kind of look at what's happened in the past, look at the success uh, rate or look at things that were successful, look at things that were failures and figure out how to have more successes and less failures, you know, going forward. Again, kind of simplifying things, right? So what are the successes that we've had as Universal Six Flags and Disney? Well, you kind of lay them out, right? Here are the things that were successful. What were our failures? Well, if I were CEO going into any of those organizations, I'd want to say not not necessarily to do more of the successes and just churn out the same thing, but what was the, what was the continue, what was the, what was the, um, what are those, those, those factors that made them successful, right? And, and how can we spread that across the resort or spread that across the different departments? And if we have a weakness, if we have a failure, if we have certain teams that aren't getting along, or we have, you know, certain areas that aren't performing, well, how do we get them, you know, up to the right standard and up to the right um, productivity level? So um, does that kind of answer your question about, you know, kind of kind of what to do when you get in that role? Yeah, I'd say so. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, no, I was just going to say, um, you know, one of the other things that kind of came in through the through the All Clear group, um, which I think ties back to what you were talking about as far as what can we learn from outside companies, uh, came from Neil Wilson because he was saying, you know, a lot of times in our organizations or in our in our parks, we look at Disney and Universal as kind of the 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 beacon, right? That's that's the gold standard that we're looking to um, looking to uh, achieve. But there's also things that probably they can learn from smaller parks, right? And I think, you know, again, whether it's smaller parks, other type of facilities, other type of attractions, or, you know, being outside the industry, I do think there's a healthy dose of looking, you know, and being open to what other other organizations are doing. I mean, just look at um, uh, Animal Kingdom, for example, right? I mean, they've got animals, right? Did we have animals at, at other Disney parks before that? So they looked at a zoo. They said, hey, a zoo is, is um, uh, a, a good model, right? People love to come see animals. Of course, their original marketing was not a zoo, uh, but, but they were um, and they are and they're you know, doing great things and, and people go there to see the animals. But that was something that if they had just kept making Magic Kingdom after Magic Kingdom after Magic Kingdom, you know, they wouldn't have diverse, diversified their their, um, their portfolio. So, you know, I also look at places like uh, Discovery King, uh, not Discovery Kingdom, Discovery Cove, right? Um, with that, that very exclusive model. And when I think about times that I've been to smaller parks, like a Waldemere in Pennsylvania or a Wild Adventures in, um, in Valdosta, Georgia, you know, one of the things that hits me about being in those smaller parks is kind of the, the more laid back um, uh, 
easier going kind of feel. Whereas when you're at a Disney or Universal, you're trying to get in as much as you can, right? And you maybe got to skip the line pass and you're you're going from thing to thing because there's so much to do. Um, but I think sometimes people like to slow down a little bit. And we've even talked about that with, with Cedar Point, you know, and your experience in the lounge. So are there more opportunities to do that, even in the big parks where there's there's more opportunity to maybe have an exclusive experience that allows you to be a little bit more laid back, right? Because so much of those big parks is about scale. We've got thousands of people coming in. We need to get everyone to do as many things as we can. Where at a smaller park like Waldemere, you can just wander around and you're going to get on everything and it's going to be a very laid back kind of experience. So I think there's there's lessons on both sides. I wonder and genuinely would challenge to say that the large destination theme parks, I don't know if they would even be capable of providing kind of that laid back. I've also been to Waldemere and it's very relaxing. Yeah. And I don't know if that can be done, like you said, at the scale when you have tens of thousands, you know, north of 30, 40, 50,000 people on an average day of bringing that, what's that word, charm? Charm. <laughs> to it and that, that level, of, uh, level of tranquility. Mm. Well, and to be fair, they may not want to. Like, <laughs> that, may, that may not be anywhere in their, in their, their business model or their wheelhouse. Um, but I'm just saying like, if, if I'm, I can, I can go to universal and Disney and go from thing to thing and have a great time. Me being a theme park nerd, I can go to Waldemere. I can go to Lakeside in Denver and ride the, um, uh, the bumper cars, right. The, uh, the neon covered bumper cars and have a great time. Right. And really enjoy the experience. I know I'm not, you know, every, I'm not the, the demographic, demographic of every guest. Um, but I do think that there's, there's again, things to be learned and maybe there's someone that really loves the experience of universal, but if you could just do it a little bit more laid back, they might be able, they might be willing to pay a premium for that. Even more of a premium. That's a VIP tour. And even more VIP. I think we've even talked about this, like the concierge level and, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's something that they really want to do, um, but that's what I look at in terms of the different sizes of parks. Yeah, and at Lakeside, while you're on the bumper cars, I'll just be going through that house of mirrors over and over again. That thing was awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Or just riding the train. Actually, I think the train was closed the day I went. Oh, yeah. The train that goes uh, all the way around the lake. That's super fun. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so... Switching gears just a little bit, there was yeah. one other thing that uh, I, I feel like was worth mentioning because it is a bit of a milestone um, within executive leadership and specifically with Disney that Susan Arnold is the first female chair in Disney's 98-year history. And I absolutely think that that is, that is something uh, to be celebrated and something to acknowledge. And I was perusing LinkedIn this morning and I saw this post come up and the post actually included a poll. And the question said, Disney has elected Susan Arnold as chair, the first female in its 98 year history. Should gender have been included in the media headlines? 
Now, at the time of this recording, the poll results here are about two thirds, yes, mention it and mention the milestone, one third, no, it's not relevant. But I wanna read the rest of this post to kind of give the full, uh, the full context of this and the responses um, kind of aligned with it. Um, so it was posted by uh, someone named Rhea Avril. So thank you, Rhea, if you're listening to this uh, for, for posting this, because it definitely stuck out. I think uh, this post is very important. It says, Disney recently appointed Susan Arnold as chairperson of the board who will succeed Bob Iger at the end of this year. A swift snapshot of Google's top stories on the topic, six out of 10 of these mention her gender in the headline. Susan has served on the Disney board for 14 years. Prior to this, she served in senior roles at Carlisle Group, Procter & Gamble, and McDonald's, as we discussed earlier. A scan of LinkedIn commentary proved insightful. Some opinions, not my own, meaning not Rhea's own, and also not my own, Josh's either, captured below, just reading verbatim. Fantastic. Why is this news? They appointed the right person who happened to be a woman. There will be a time when females in powerful positions are mundanely the norm. Until then, let's celebrate this. The woman has a name. This is such an awful headline. Susan Arnold becomes the first woman in Disney's history to be appointed chair. Doesn't that give way more credit to Arnold? And doesn't that give way more credit to Arnold and her hard work? Once we have more women in leadership positions and their presence is normalized, you won't see these first headlines any longer. In the meantime, I wish news agencies would list a significant qualification alongside the gender identity to showcase the unique and significant qualities these leaders possess that got them to that position. Disney hires the best person for the role should be the strap line and lots more. Uh, and then Rhea said, interested in the thoughts and those in my network. And there's a few comments on here and we certainly don't need to need to get into it, but I think it's worth bringing up at least the question. And I certainly don't feel that you and I should come up with the answer for it as two men hosting this podcast that I don't think it's, I don't think that is our place to be able to come up with an answer for it, but it did definitely get my attention of, uh, of also wondering, and I am curious for everyone's thoughts on this too, is how important is it that she is the first female chair in Disney's 98-year history versus there is a new chair of the board of Disney who is extremely qualified and well-positioned to take the company to the next level? And yes, she is a woman. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, right. I, I would say I, I'm on, on the same page as you in many, many different ways. Like it's not for us to, to decide whether or not that should be there. Um, but also that one comment that it's not yet normalized for someone to be in that role. And I think where you see the media calling that out, it may be more about clicks and, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of headlines right. than okay, here, here are her qualifications, right? Um, I, I, I totally think that, you know, if, if she's the right person for the job, great. I don't think it needs to be in the headline again, but that's not me. Uh, it's not for me to, to decide. Um, but I do think that because it's not as common as it has been in the past, then someone writing that article, if they're looking for something unique in that headline, then they're going to put that in there. Just like if an African-American, first African-American you know, president, first African-American um, CEO of Disney, they're going to put that in there again until it's normalized. And I think there's a good part of the population that doesn't care, right? 
okay, they appointed the right person for the job. Great. Let's get moving. Right. Yeah. But there's, there's probably other people, unfortunately, that are divided and say, well, because she's a woman, she shouldn't be in that, in that role. Right. Which I don't understand that thought process, but okay. So I think that there's, there's two angles to it. You know, should, should that be in there, you know, just from a, a humanistic standpoint, no, it probably doesn't need to be in there from a click and, you know, a, a journalist perspective, maybe they thought it was necessary. So again, I, I kind of see it in, in a couple of different ways. Well, what I think is, is fascinating and something that, and part of the reason why this sparked my attention is that I've, I've always thought, and this is when an article or a headline um, like this references gender, race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, anything there is, and I, and I have to be delicate in the way that I position this is saying, is the ultimate goal for that part of it to not be newsworthy? Um, and I'll give you a kind of an, an unrelated example from, from several years ago, where I think it was about seven, six or seven or so years ago, where there was the first openly gay football player who was drafted into the NFL. Uh, Michael Sam, I believe was his name. And it made such big headlines of just how, how this is the first, this is the first, this is the first. And I, I just remember thinking of like, does this, does it need to be as newsworthy that he is an openly gay football player in the NFL rather than here's, here's a new football player drafted to, honestly, I don't even remember what team he was drafted <laughs> to. And let's, you know, see how his skills are on the field. And, oh, he also happens to be openly gay as well. To me like that, like that didn't matter. It wasn't like an, oh my God, I can't believe this type thing. Perhaps, hopefully, because I just felt like that, it didn't didn't correlate too much with the actual story of a qualified football player being drafted. Does that does that make sense? Am I? It it makes total right sense. Okay. No, it makes total sense coming from Josh Liebman, right? And I think it would make total sense coming from Matt Heller. But it may make you know there may be a different story to be told from another openly gay or maybe not openly gay football player who's looking to get into the NFL or hopefully going to be drafted and hoping that being gay is not a barrier, right? And this goes back to, you know, our conversation with Chris Hightower. It goes back to what we talked about at IAPA when, you know, in, in terms of diversity and inclusion, if you can't see yourself in that role, then it's hard to take, figure out what steps you need to get to that role. So if there are other, you know, gay people who are playing football, then now they see, oh, there's a role model. There's somebody who looks and acts and, and behaves like me that I can, I can aspire to that. Um, also in the NFL, they made a big deal when, when they had the first woman uh, referee, right? right? So if there's other women out there that want to be referees and they think that they, and they love football and they think the NFL is the place where they want to be. Now they have someone that they can aspire to, or they can, they can say, Hey, look, she did it. They broke the glass ceiling. So now I can take the steps to get there as well. So while you and I as two white guys probably think, yeah, it should, it shouldn't be a big deal. Right. I'm not the person who's in the locker room wondering if I'm ever going to get a shot. And if, if being gay is going to be, the, the barrier that keeps me away, even though I may be the greatest football player ever. Right. So that makes sense. thank you so much for, yeah, no, I, I appreciate you clarifying it from that perspective and that hopefully we are moving towards a world where 
everyone has enough people in the positions that they are looking for, that they are aspiring for, that when someone of any race, gender, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation is promoted into a position of leadership or in the previous example drafted in sports that hopefully one day it won't be as newsworthy because there is so much representation and diversity from all groups. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Good. Cool. Yeah. So uh, we crowdsourced a bit, right? We, we got some, some input from, from folks. Was there anything else that we needed to, uh, to talk about or did we kind of run the gamut on some of those topics? I think, you know, we, we covered, I, I think three core topics of some of the recent news in the industry or three core conversations with it, uh, being the experience outside the industry, uh, now in the executive level and in the, uh, in the board level as well, uh, expecting change and being on board, great uh, suggestions and recommendations for that. And then also uh, the importance and the significance of the first female chair in Disney's 98 year history and what this means going forward. Absolutely. So those are some of our thoughts. If you also have thoughts, we'd love to hear uh, from you. You can find us on the socials. You can, of course, email us at attractionpros uh, at gmail.com. And uh, we're happy to hear what other what other thoughts you have. Um, if you have other questions for us, again, send those, send those, those questions. Maybe we'll crowdsource another one of these here in the future. Uh, but until then, thank you, everybody, for listening and watching. And just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.